Lord willing, tonight I'm going to be preaching on the butler, the baker, and the gospel out of Genesis chapter 40. I've entitled the message for this morning, Look and Live. I hope every one of us, me and you, will pray that the Lord will enable us to do just that as we hear this message. Look and live. One of the things that I find so amazing about this story is how, for lack of a better word, uncomplicated it is. Look, when I say that, no one says, well, what are you talking about? Look, John chapter 3 is a passage of great importance. In John chapter 3, we have the Lord telling us about being born again or born from above. Verse 1 There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. The same came to Jesus by night and said unto him, Rabbi, we know that thou art a teacher come from God. For no man can do these miracles that thou doest except God be with him. Jesus answered and said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. He's saying, Nicodemus, you know nothing. Except you're born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, what is this thing of being born again? If I understand that the Bible teaches a man is dead in sins. Now, hear this very carefully. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 17, God said to Adam, In the day you eat thereof. You shall surely die. Well, he ate and he died. He didn't die physically, but he died spiritually. Hence the necessity of the new birth. If you're dead spiritually, you breathe, you have your heart pumping and blood going through your veins, you're physically alive, your soul's alive, you're a human being, but you have no spiritual life. You lack the capacity to believe the gospel. You lack the capacity to love God. Dead in sins. That's a bad place to be. 
dead in sins. Hence the necessity of being born from above. Born again. Now how much did you have to do with creating your first life? Nothing. How much power do you have in this new birth? Zilch. Nothing. Verse 4, Nicodemus saith unto him, How can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? I'm not real sure that there's not a little bit of smart aleck going on there. Jesus answered, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Except a man be born of water. Now, is he talking about baptism? No. Listen to these scriptures. Ephesians 5, 26 Said, says the washing of water by the word. The washing of water by the word. It's the word that washes. It's the word that begets life. Psalm 119, verse 9, Whether with all shall a young man cleanse his ways by taking heed thereunto according to thy word. Now when he's speaking of water, that's the word of God that washes, that regenerates. Of his own will begat he us through the word of truth. Being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible by the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. Now, it's God the Holy Spirit Taking the word to beget life. Not the preacher's words, but the word of God. That's what God uses to beget this spiritual life. Now what I think is very interesting is of all the scriptures that the Lord could have used to demonstrate what it is to hear the word. And to have eternal life, he uses what we just read about in Numbers chapter 21. And that gives us some idea of the importance of this passage of Scripture. Look what he says in verse 14. Remember this, uh, John chapter 3, the message is not over until verse 21. Uh you know, I was thinking about this. I could give the proper teaching uh, concerning the new birth and nobody be born again. But I might preach John 3, 14 and 15, look and live, and somebody might not understand what it means to be born again, but they're born again when they live, they look and live. I mean, this is the gospel. This is the passage that the Savior selected to demonstrate what it is to believe the gospel and have this new birth, this eternal life. When he's talking about eternal life, 
He's not talking about the longevity of the eternal life, but the essence, the quality of this life, the life of God in the soul. This is how it comes through what is taking place in this passage of Scripture. Let's go back to Numbers chapter 21. In order to understand what's going on in Numbers 21, let's look at Numbers 20, verse 15. Verse 14, And Moses sent messengers from Kadesh unto the king of Edom. Now remember, Edom is the descendants of Esau. Thus saith thy brother Israel, Thou knowest all the travail that hath befallen us, how our fathers went down into Egypt, and we have dwelt in Egypt a long time, and the Egyptians vexed us and our fathers. And when we cried unto the Lord, he heard our voice, and sent an angel, and hath brought us forth out of Egypt. And behold, we're in Kadesh, a city in the uttermost of thy border. Let us pass, I pray thee, through thy country. We will not pass through the fields or through the vineyards, neither will we drink of the water of the wells. We will go by the king's highway. We'll not turn to the right nor to the left until we have passed thy borders. He's saying, let us pass through your country. This will save us a lot of time. Let us pass through your country, the country of the Edomites. Verse 18, and Edom said unto him, thou shalt not pass by me, lest I come out against thee with the sword. And the children of Israel said unto them, we'll go by the highway. And if I and my cattle drink of thy water, then I'll pay for it. I will only, without doing anything else, go through on my feet. And he, Edom, said, Thou shalt not go through. And Edom came out against him with much people and with a strong hand. And Edom refused to give Israel passage through the border. Wherefore Israel turned away from him. Now, because they were not going to pass through Edom, uh, what I read, it would take them an extra three weeks in the hot desert sun traveling on foot. This was not good news to them. Verse 4, chapter 21, And they journeyed from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to compass the land of Edom, to go around the land of Edom. They couldn't pass through it. They had to go along the border, adding much to their journey. And the soul of the people was much discouraged because of the way. It was hot, it was uncomfortable. And the soul of the people was much discouraged because of the way. Discouragement. Discouragement. You know anything about that? Much discouragement. The common conundrum of humanity. Discouragement. Disappointment. Disillusioned. 
circumstances are difficult, heavy, hard. Things have not gone as I planned. I'm discouraged. Much discouragement because of the way. Now, when we're discouraged, we're certainly not believing God, are we? I'm not saying that harshly. I understand discouragement. I hate it when I'm discouraged. The people were much discouraged because of the way. Verse 5. Now, before I read this, remember, the Lord had delivered them from Egypt. He parted the Red Sea for them to go through. They had taken with them the riches of Egypt. He had given them manna from heaven on a daily basis. And you remember that rock that was smitten in Exodus chapter 17? Water gushed from that rock. And we know that we're given that to picture Christ. He was smitten. And the water of grace, the water of his forgiveness, the salvation comes from him. And 1 Corinthians 10.4 says that rock followed them. It followed them. Somebody says, well, how could that be? Well, if water can come out of the rock, it can follow them. <laughs> that rock followed them. Manna from heaven. Water from the rock. And the people spake against God after all that God had done for them. The people spake against God and against Moses. Wherefore have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? Now how could they say something like that? Same way me and you could. Let's don't get too hard on them. You and I have done the same thing. For there's no bread, neither is there any water, and our soul loatheth this light bread. Now wait a minute. Bread from heaven had fallen that very day. Manna. It came every day. And water had come from that rock. But what is their assessment of what took place? There's no bread. We're not going to call that manna bread. There's no water. Our soul loatheth this Light bread. The bread was the same. The composition was the same. The taste was the same. The bread hadn't changed. But they had. The bread is no longer manna from heaven. It's 
light bread, insubstantial bread, not enough to satisfy bread. I can remember one time um, somehow in our house we had light bread. It had 30 calories a slice, and you couldn't taste the 30 calories. <laughs> it wouldn't do anybody any good at all. It was not satisfying bread. It was light bread. When the gospel is gospel light, the reason is I've moved away from Christ being all. And I need something else. I've moved away from being complete in Christ. Something else is needed. And the manna has become light bread. Insubstantial bread. Not enough to satisfy. I need something else. Verse 6, and the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, and much people of Israel died. Now, snakes. Serpents. I live with two women who despise serpents, scared to death of them. I think they'll both vouch for that. Disgusted by, revolted by snakes. Now, what if you had poisonous snakes filled in your house, in your tent, coming out of the ceiling? coming through the windows. Can you imagine how miserable that existence would be? You'd be doing everything you could to keep those snakes out. You'd try to make your house snake-proof. You'd fill in every crack. You'd do whatever it took to keep those snakes out. But here, it didn't work. The snakes still were coming in, fiery snakes, when they would bite, fire would be filled in your veins and you'd die. Can you imagine how terrifying that would be? Fiery serpents. And there's nothing you could do to prevent them from acting upon you. If you and I were in that camp, and there's nothing we could do to protect ourselves from the snakes. Can you imagine what a miserable condition that was, would be? Now, they were much discouraged because of the way, but I guarantee you this was a whole lot worse. Fiery snakes. The venom of sin biting the people. Verse 7. Therefore, the people came to Moses and said, We 
have sinned. What a blessed place to be. We have sinned. You know what they're doing at this time? They're taking sides with God against themselves. This is all of our fault. We have sinned. Everything we've done is wicked. It's evil. We've sinned against light. We've sinned against love. We've sinned against grace. We have sinned. Have you ever made that confession? I'm not talking about before men. Before God. You're taking sides with God against yourself. Now we know that what things soever the law saith, it saith to them who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped and all the world become guilty before God. Guilty as charged. We have Sinned. For we have spoken against the Lord and against thee. Pray unto the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. And Moses prayed for the people. Now, Moses is a beautiful type of Christ here. What do the people do? They don't come to God on their own. They come through Moses. Not through the law. Moses being a type of Christ at this time. Moses prayed for us. You know, whenever Moses prayed for somebody, the Lord heard. I, wouldn't you like to have Moses praying for you? Well, how much more would you like to have the Lord Jesus Christ praying for you? They say to Moses, pray to the Lord for us. We can't come on our own. And I think this is interesting what they requested. Pray to the Lord for us that he take away the serpents from us. He doesn't, or they don't say, teach us how to defeat these serpents. Teach us how to keep them out. Enable us, us to kill these serpents. He says, take them away. The only hope that I have, that we have, is that you take away the problem. We can't fight it. Take it away. He was manifested to what? Take away our sins. In him is no sin. We have the promise of Romans eleven twenty seven. This is my covenant with him when I shall take away their sins. My soul, that's what I need. I need him to do something about my sin. I need him to take it away. That's what they're asking. Take it away. You see, the blood of bulls and goats could never take away sins. No religious works could ever take away sins. I need my sins taken away.
I'm no match for these fiery serpents. Will you take them away? And Moses prayed for the people. Look in verse 8. And the Lord said. Aren't you thankful for those words? And the Lord said. Oh, I'm so thankful for the word of God. And the Lord said. Now remember, this is what the Savior uses to illustrate what it is to have eternal life, what it is to believe the gospel. Let's begin with what the Lord said. And the Lord said unto Moses, Make thee a fiery serpent and set it upon a pole. Now we know from the next verse that this was a serpent made of brass. And I think it's interesting, if you go on down through the history of Israel, in Hezekiah's time, hundreds of years later, they still had that serpent of brass. You know what they started doing? They started worshiping it and burning incense to it. And you know what Hezekiah did? He ground it into powder and said it's nothing but a worthless piece of brass. So don't uh, worship the brass, the serpent of brass, but what the serpent represents, the Lord Jesus Christ being nailed to a cross. That's what this serpent represents. Now, brass, tin and copper, a compound. I really believe that the reason it's made of two things is to represent the two natures of Jesus Christ. Complete manhood, complete deity. Not half man and half God. All man, just as if he were not God at all, the man Christ Jesus. All God, as if he were not man at all. The God-man, the Lord Jesus Christ, fully God. In him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead in a body, fully man. Now somebody says, why would they want, uh, snakes are the problem. Why would you want to put snake, uh, the snake on a pole? This is how the problem is taken away, by Christ being nailed to a cross. You take that serpent and you put it on a pole. Now turn back to hold your finger there in numbers and turn back to John chapter 3. Here is the Lord's comment on this snake being placed on a pole. Verse 14, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must. Don't miss that. This is absolutely necessary. Even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Nailed to a pole and lifted up. Somebody says, well, I thought he was nailed to a cross. 
Well, I think the cross is nothing more than a pole. The cross, there's no uh, indication that that's what the Lord was nailed on. A cross is simply a pole. And he was nailed to a pole and it was lifted up. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up from the earth. Why must he be lifted up? Why is this necessary? Number one, because it's God's eternal purpose. That's a good enough reason, isn't it? God created the universe for this event. The manifestation of his glory through his son being nailed to a cross. Yes, it's necessary. God's purpose is always done. He must be nailed to a cross, secondly, because God is just. First, it's his purpose. Christ is called the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. God's purpose, God's justice. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. I want you to pretend like you've never heard this verse of scripture before. You know, we ought to, uh, we ought to have the Bible notes so well we have it all memorized. I know that's impossible, but uh, it'd be good, wouldn't it, if we memorized every scripture. And I'm gonna rem- I, I certainly want to memorize this scripture, but every time I come to it, I want to come to it like I've never seen it before. For the very first time. Second Corinthians chapter 5 verse 21. Here's why Jesus Christ was nailed to a pole. For he, God the Father, hath made him to be sin for us. And notice that to be is in italics. For he hath made him sin. For us. Who knew no sin. The Lord Jesus Christ. Never sinned. He knew no sin. He knew nothing of the horror of sin. He knew how evil it was. But he didn't know it the way you and I do. The Father made him sin. Now what all is involved in that, I don't know. I just read it and am amazed. The Father made him sin. I wish I could comment on that the way it ought to be commented on but I can't I can't there it is the father made him sin for us who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in him now let's take that passage of scripture at its face value. 
I think we hurt ourselves, do violence to the scripture whenever we try to imply certain things from it. Let's just take it for what it says on the very surface. It does not say that Christ was made a sinner, nor does it say that we are made righteous. That's not what the passage says. It does not say God imputed sin to him, nor does it say God imputed righteousness to us. It does not say that God imparted sin to him. It does not say that God imparted righteousness to us. It does not say that God treated him as if he were guilty. Nor does it say that God treats us as if we are not guilty. It says, he made him sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. That's why he must be lifted up. Why must he be lifted up? Verse 16 tells us in John chapter 3, For God so loved the world. He must be lifted up because God is love. Now, this is interesting. I, I love John three sixteen. Lord willing, I'd like to preach on that next week. Uh, and then bring another message from John three sixteen through 21 sometime down the road. But um, John three sixteen may be the most often quoted scripture in the Bible. Matter of fact, when you see athletes, they'll have John three sixteen on their cheeks, you know, when they're, when they're, uh, uh, people have it branded on them, John three sixteen, And you know, very few people know anything about John 3, 14, and 15. And John 3, 16 cannot possibly understood, be understood without John 3, 14, and 15. This passage of scripture concerning the gospel. God loves sinners. You hear that? God, the infinite God, loves sinners. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth on him should not perish but have eternal life. Herein is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us. Let's go back to our text in Numbers now. Verse 8. And the Lord said unto Moses, 
Make thee a fiery serpent, and set it upon a pole. And it shall come to pass that everyone that's bitten. Now, if you're not bitten, you don't have much interest in looking at that pole. You don't need to. Who is it that looked upon that pole? Everyone that was bitten. Bitten with the venom of sin that you know you'll die. Everyone that was bitten. Those are the only folks who looked. Everyone that was bitten. When he looketh. When he looketh upon it, shall live. Now, don't you love the simplicity of that? When he looks. When he looks. Now, I doubt that Moses, at this time, when he was going back and forth through the camp, saying, look, look. I seriously doubt that he was asking them about their lapsarian views or whether they were pre, post, or all millennialists. He didn't tell them they first needed to repent of their sins and get their lives straightened out before they could look. I feel sure he didn't say what they needed to do was change the culture in that place and infiltrate proper principles. I'm sure politics and social injustices were not touched. He didn't try to make himself relevant. He just said, look. Look. And live. Now that's the message of the cross. Look. Somebody says, I don't see, then you've never looked. If you look, you will see. And if you do not see, you have not looked. I have no doubt about this. If somebody was blind, if they would have turned their sightless eye sockets to that serpent on a pole, they were healed. Amen. Scripture says, look ye blind and see. Verse 9. And Moses made a serpent of brass. Just as God said, and put it upon a pole. I don't know how high that pole was, but you can bet it was high. Because people throughout the camp were to look upon that. And it came to pass that if a serpent had bitten any man. I love that. It doesn't say if the serpent had bitten an elect sinner. It didn't say, it didn't give any adjective or description, just any man. Is that you? Are you in that demographic? Any man. I don't care who you are. Any man. If a serpent 
had bidden any man when he beheld, when he just looked, the serpent of brass, he lived. Hebrews 12, 2 says, looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. Looking unto Jesus. Do you believe looking at the God-man, the two natures, fully God, fully perfect humanity, is he able to save you without any of your contribution, without any of your help? Looking at him as the surety before the foundation of the world when he agreed, I'll Save them. If he's your surety, is there any doubt of your salvation? If he agreed to save you before time began, before you had any existence, is there any doubt that saved you must be? Well, how can I know if he is my surety? You look to him. That's the only evidence. You look to him. He's your surety. Look to him in his perfect life. His law keeping. His obedience to God's holy law. He never sinned. There's your righteousness. Look to him as your personal righteousness before God. You look to him in his death. There's your sin payment. Jesus paid it all. We just heard that all the dead I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. We don't sing Jesus paid a half the other half I owe. No. Jesus paid it all. All the debt I owe. I look at his death as God's satisfaction. He shall see the travail of his soul and be satisfied. We look to his resurrection as our justification. He was delivered for our offenses and raised again for our justification. The moment he died, I was justified. Don't you have to believe to be justified? Of course you do. You've got to believe that. When he was raised from the dead, I was justified by what he did. Let me tell you the reason I persevere. I'm looking to him to intercede for me. The man Christ Jesus. The reason I persevere is because he prays for me. I look for his return as my glorification. When he appears, we'll be like him. Isn't that glorification? When he appears, we'll be like him. For we shall see him as he is. Heaven will be looking upon him. If you've never looked, 
look now. Don't wait for anything. Look to him now. And if you have looked, keep on looking. Let's pray. Lord, we ask in the high and holy name of him who was nailed to a pole to make a way for you to be just and justify us. We ask in his name that you would give everybody in this room, for Christ's sake, the grace to look to him and to look nowhere else. In his name we pray.